Thank you to our worship team. God bless you, and it's so good to be with all of you today. Welcome in Jesus' name. What a great crowd on a nasty day. Weren't you going to clap for me today, John? Thank you. The $20 will be there later. I'm just playing. But I'm so glad to see all of you here today. I add my word of welcome to that which has already been given today by others to say God bless you for coming on such a nasty day, huh? But did you get my email yesterday? 100% chance of rain, but there's a 100% chance God's going to show up here today. And He has. He already has manifested Himself powerfully in our worship time today, for which we're grateful, aren't we? Welcome also those who are outside. We have several uh, outside listening on a radio broadcast so they can be close to the church house. And we love them and thank God they're here with us. We also have some listening over the internet. In fact, I talked to several yesterday and one person told me that I better do good today. They're normally here, but they're having to listen over the internet because of quarantine issues. So I'd better do good. So I'm going to do my very best to do so. But I'm glad you're here, um, particularly on a nasty day like today. It did sleet a little bit over to the page house yesterday, and someone said, Wayne, that you got a few flakes of snow. Now, you're telling the truth, aren't you, Wayne? Okay. Wayne wouldn't lie to me. But seriously, I know it's been cold and uh, sleet and snow and, and just rain. And you know, you remember what my mama said. What did my mama say? 19 drops of water, John. Say it out loud. That's what my mama said, but today mama was wrong, right? Today mama was wrong. I can say that now that she's deceased because let me tell you, she was not above hitting me and no matter how old I got, she had popped me. Just teasing, of course, but anyway, I am glad that you're here. Now, we live in difficult days. I think any, anybody here would recognize that, admit that. I've said before, it's so sad that through my growing up generation, every generation in mine and prior to mine could say with some degree of hopefulness that they believed things would get better for their children and their children's children. But no one can say that anymore. And now I grieve and worry over the environment and the world in which my grandchildren will grow up. Because I truly believe, and I don't believe there's anybody in here believes things are going to get better in our culture and in our world. And but that calls us to a recognition of what really does matter and where we should put our emphasis and where we should put our focus in this world. And uh, someone I texted yesterday who's here today said, this is a happy place. And I like that. It is a happy and a safe place. And we want it to be just that. But you need to know also it's a place where you're going to hear the truth and where I'm going to preach God's word whether you like it or not, whether you accept it or not, and whether you enjoy it or not. We're going to see what God says. Let me begin with a couple of uh, quotes. How would you like this to be quoted? This one preacher said, you seem to imagine that I have no ups and downs, but just a level and lofty stretch of spiritual attainment with unbroken joy and equanimity. 
by no means. I am often perfectly wretched, and everything appears most murky. Those were the words of an English preacher who lived really at the beginning of the last century. He was called one time, his name was Dr. J. John Henry Jowett, was called the greatest preacher in the English-speaking world. And then another man that's probably quoted more than any preacher in history, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, another great English pastor from before that time, said this, I am the subject of depression and spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. Wow. Life can be hard in any season of history. Even a great president whom I've read about so much. Uh, in fact, if you've not read uh, the great book, Team of Rivals, which is about Abraham Lincoln, you need to. Now, it is a lengthy tome of over a thousand pages. And when I've taught, I've required my students to read it. And they fuss, fuss, fuss until they read it. And then they thank me for it. But in that biography, Doris Hearns Goodwin, one of the greatest writers in American history, uh, I think she won a Pulitzer Prize for that book. She said that Lincoln suffered from what he called bouts of melancholia, depression. And sometimes he would feel like he would never break loose. Paul the Apostle struggled. In fact, in the study that we're doing on Wednesday nights, the, the beautiful epistle of 2 Corinthians, we will see in a, this week's study where he says in chapter 1, verse 8, these words, I am pressed out of measure, King James, and I am despaired even of life. Last verses, last part of, of 2 Corinthians 1, 8. So the Apostle Paul and Abraham Lincoln and Jowett and Spurgeon all struggled with life. Well, we do too, don't we? We do too. Paul the Apostle struggled. Uh, many biblical characters did. I'm reminded of that somewhat humorous but pointed story I've shared before. Remember it about the uh, man and his wife who were missionaries in Brazil and they went to take care of a Christian camp on the Piranha River? They pronounce it there, the Paraná River. And the man wanted to go swimming so badly because every day it would get to 120 degrees. And if you've never been in South America, uh, near the equator, that's how hot it gets. And I've been in Ecuador, which is the Spanish word for equator, and it can get so hot. But this man just wanted to go swimming so badly, but he had heard about the piranha. And he thought, well, I can't swim. The piranha will eat me alive. Until someone once told him, some group of locals said, well, listen, they never attack anybody around here. Why is that? Because they never swim in schools around here, and they only attack someone if they're in schools one with another, a group. He said, really? Yeah. So he started swimming, and, and his wife says he swam every afternoon for the rest of the season. 
and just was so glad to get cooled off when it was 120 degrees. But finally he heard about a local fisherman that had gone missing. So he went and inquired a little deeper. He said, what do you think happened? Well, we don't know. Do you think he got eaten by piranhas? Well, we told you piranhas only attack when you're in a school or a group, one with another, and they never swim in schools around here. Well, why is that? He said, because they're afraid of the crocodiles. That's why. Well, I've known a lot of people who seem to think that choosing between life and death is choosing between the piranhas and the crocodiles. One is bad and the other might be worse, but it's a choice between two evils. Whether I live, it's not good, and it's getting worse. Whether I die, I'm afraid. I don't know what's out there. And so people in this world really live as if they're living between the piranha and the crocodile. Even believers can get discouraged. Even believers can think, well, I just don't see much reason for living in this world. We can become discouraged too. And so for many, life is at best a struggle and death is some murky, unknown phenomenon. For those of us, however, who have tasted the heavenly gift of Christ, we ought to have a better attitude than that, shouldn't we? Yes, we have our struggles in this life, but we all know, we believe with certainty that there's a better life coming. But we're caught between two worlds. We're caught between two worlds, and thus the title of the message, Caught in the Gap. Paul, the apostle, deals with this in Philippians 1, verses 21 through 26. And so I invite you to open your Bibles, look to the screen, however you want to do it. If you've got a smartphone, you may want to look on your smartphone. But whatever you do to look and follow along, please. Philippians 1, beginning with verse 21. And I will tell you ahead of time. This is my favorite passage in all the Bible, okay? Now, Taylor's is getting him a new preacher. God bless him. He's a wonderful young man, 40-something. And I met him. I like him. Well, he got up last Sunday, and people laughed at him. And I'm sure he doesn't even know why people laughed at him, because he said what he was preaching about was his favorite scripture. People laughed at him. I'm going to have to call him and say, Josh, son, the reason they laughed at you is because they laugh at me, because I say that about every scripture but I mean it today and you're gonna agree with me today you really will look at verse 21 for me I'll use King James for me to live is Christ but to die is gain let's just say that out loud in King James wait just a minute for me to live is Christ but to die is gain once more please for me to live is Christ but to die is gain. I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that. Now let's keep going. Verse 22, now if I live on in this flesh, in the, in the flesh, this means fruitful work or labor for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I am pressured by both. I am pressed in. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your advancement and joy in the faith, so that because of me your confidence may grow in Christ Jesus 
when I come to see you again. Now remember what I said last week or the week before. Paul, as he preaches this, writes this, excuse me, as he writes this, he is in prison. And literally, a word overused in the 21st century, literally he did not know which day would be his last. Because the executioner could have gotten him out of the cell and set off with your head. That day, he did not know any day if it would be his last. He didn't know if he would be allowed to live or he would be called for his death. And so because of that, he had to look at things very soberly. And so he weighs the greater glory of living against the glory, the greater glory of dying. He could be found not guilty, released. He could be executed. But his aim was always, no matter what happens, listen to me, no matter what happens, I want glory to come to the Lord. You see, Paul... Maybe different than you and me, but for him, living was so full of Christ that Christ summed up his life. He was so filled with Christ that Christ summed up his life. Is that the way we are? For us, it may seem as life and death, uh, choice between two evils, but for Paul, it was the choice between two glories. One was great and the other was greater. And that's really the way we ought to see life and death, even in the 21st century. So first major point for for the believer, for the Christ follower, to live is to experience Christ. Paul talks about that in verse 21. To live is to experience Christ. For me to live is Christ. Now you know, if you've been in church more than a week or two, that he came to know the Lord on that road to Damascus. I told someone, maybe Wednesday night, maybe Sunday school, I don't know. But it's that road that went really for all the way from Egypt into Damascus. And I have stood on that road, the Via Mare in Israel. And it's a road that takes you straight into downtown Damascus. You can't quite go from Israel to there right now because the border is closed. But... Paul's day, he was going to do what? To take hold of Christians that he'd heard about in Damascus. And he wanted to do away with them and bring them into prison. And many would die there. So he's very excited about his assignment. Having been raised among the intelligentsia of the Jewish faith, he wanted to do what he was assigned to do. Here was a man who was theologically trained under the greatest leader called Gamaliel. And he is excited. They've given me a big job and I'm going to go do it. But Christ came to him on that road somewhere in Israel and knocked him down. He went blind from the experience. And then he got discipled and he got taught the way of the Lord. And now things have changed. Because on that road to Damascus, it was like he was born all over again. So Christ was really the beginning of his life. And you could probably ask Paul and when you get to heaven, you can spend some time. I've got dibs on him first but you can spend some time with him if you want and you can say now Paul where were you born he wouldn't say I was born in Tarsus he would say I was born in Israel on the road to Damascus because Christ is the beginning of my life I tell every listen to me boys and girls young people listen to me if you're a follower of Christ you ought to insist on your parents giving you two birthdays with presents and everything 
the day you were saved and the day you were born. In fact, you ought to get more on the day you were saved. Yep, yep, you, t- Ellie, you tell him, you tell him. Anyway, parents love it when I say that. But listen, we ought to celebrate our spiritual birthday more than we celebrate our physical birthday. For Paul, it was the beginning of his life. Christ was the continuation of his life. Day by day, he sang to him. He loved him. He learned about him. He was so obsessed with living in Christ that he said in 1 Corinthians, first, not second, he said, I am convinced that I will only preach Christ and Christ crucified. I was once witnessing to some people of another faith, Jehovah's Witness. And it was a tense experience. And one particular person was very aggressive to me. And I have a, a Lord taught me a lesson years ago to quit trying to win the argument because I lost the witness. And I started being a little nicer. But there were days when it get, it's get on my last nerve. And, I'd, and I said, well, I guess then you think Paul was a fool. Because they de-emphasize Christ, of course. No, we think Paul was a great man. Then why do you think Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I am convinced, therefore, I will only preach Christ and Christ crucified. Guess he was just a little off of whack, wasn't he? He was obsessed with Jesus. I want to preach Christ and Christ crucified. So for Paul, it was the beginning of his life. It was the continuation of his life. And he looked forward to that day when life would end in Christ. He, he, he was everything to him. And I, we need to ask ourselves today, is Christ everything to me? Is Jesus everything to me? I told you that oft-told story of William Calvert, one of the first early missionaries, as he was traveling to the South Sea Islands and on his en route the people on the ship, including the captain's ship, just loved him and his Christian missionaries. And as they were getting ready to disembark and go onto the shore of a cannibal-infested island, the captain begged him, William Calvert, do not go. If you go, they will kill you. To which Calvert replied, all of us died before we ever got on the ship. Whew. Died to self and lived to Christ. That's powerful. Can we say for me to live is Christ? Is he everything to me? Second, let's move on. For the Christian, for the Christ follower, death is a grand promotion. It's a grand promotion. For me to live is Christ. Say it out loud with me. For me to live is Christ, but to die gain. What do you think that word gain means? It's a banking word. We've got some bankers in here, money people. It is a word that meant both principle and interest. Paul was saying, when I die, I'm going to cash it all in. Now, this was a bloody week in the stock market. Don't even talk about it. I told you we can't buy groceries for another month or two. It was a bloody week in the stock market. But let me just tell you something. When you die, you're going to experience principle and interest. In other words, you get it all. Whatever you had here, there's going to be more of it there. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So Paul knew that whatever good was in this life, he was going to experience even more of it in heaven. That is why there's a very odd verse in 1 Corinthians that says, Now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why? You won't need faith when you're in heaven. Why? The object of your faith will be there. You won't need hope. 
We need it here, don't we? But there, your, your object of hope is present. But love will continue. That will keep on going. Paul knew that whatever I had of value here, I will experience again in heaven. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Oh, my friends, it's a powerful picture of what it should be in our lives. Paul was confident that death would be both a gain, a progression, and an increase of everything of real value here. And he wanted to go. Look at verse 23. He said, I really want to go. I am pressured by both. I have the desire to depart, be with Christ. Because that is what? Far better. There was no fear in him thinking of his passing over to the other side. I wish to depart, he said. That is an interesting word in Greek because it's used in a number of ways. It's used when soldiers would take down their tent and depart. It's used when a sailor would set sail and depart. It was used when a prisoner was set free and would leave. So Paul was saying, listen, I'm ready to take down my tent. I'd much rather take down my tent and go to heaven. He was saying, I'd much rather set my sail and go on. He was saying, I would much rather be set free. I really want that. I was talking with a young lady years ago in another state, and she was trying to talk to her new her husband was a new person in Christ. And she just kept talking about heaven so much, he finally said to her, do you have a death wish or something? And she kind of looked at him and said, well, yeah, I guess I do. He said, well, just don't leave yet. But what was she saying? She was saying, I know that for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It's going to be so much better and that's the way it should be for all of us. Isn't it beautiful to see people who truly believe? Believers who've known the Lord a while. And as they approach the end of their life, I've heard so many saints of God say, Pastor, I just want to go home. I want to go home. And it's so wonderful to see a true believer go from this life to the next life. Now, you may think it's a terrible thing to be with someone when they die. But let me tell you, if they're a follower of Christ, there's nothing sad to see there. Because they are in a far better place and they can say, for me to live is Christ. But to die is gain. And they know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So for believers, death is both union and reunion. Death is both union and reunion. Union with the Lord himself. Can you imagine I can't. I mean, people are always asking me, Pastor, what do you think heaven's going to be like? Well, I cannot with earthly words express to you what a divine environment is going to be like. I don't think there's time like we have here. I think that's a human, con a human issue. I think it's going to be very different. The Lord says, for with me, a day is a thousand years. And when you're there a thousand years, it's going to seem like I got here yesterday. For the believer, death is both a union and a reunion. And I ask you right now, are you ready to die? Are you ready to die? Don't answer it too quickly. You better be careful how you answer that. Are you ready to die? Do you look forward to that union with Christ? I pray the answer is an unequivocal yes. I told some of you before, I used to fly a lot and I told a young adult Sunday school class up there today. I 
at one time had over a million miles on Delta alone. My girls have helped me take care of that, believe me. Believe me, they've helped me take care of that. But I, I have flown so much, there's very little in the airplane world that I have not experienced. Uh, now, I have not crashed before. I don't think I ever have. Having cars a few times, but not in airplanes. But, I mean, I've been hit by, I've been in the plane when it's hit by lightning, and that's happened to me a number of times. That'll get your attention. Let me just tell you, it will get your attention. One time, I was sitting in first class, free upgrade, remember? Free upgrade, and we got hit by lightning, and that flight attendant screamed like buddy murder. And I said, ma'am, calm down. I'm, she's supposed to be calming everybody. I'm having to say, ma'am, you need to calm down. It's okay. Planes get hit by lightning every day. Not the one I'm on! Well, anyway. Yes, I was very fortunate. But it's, it, it can happen, and it's okay, because they're built to take a lightning strike. But I, I'll never forget several times, maybe three or four, I have been on the airplane when we were landing and we had to abort the landing, they call it. Well, and so what would happen is when you get down close, and this one time, I'll never forget it, I was going into a small airport, uh, and there are some small ones out there, and I've been in most of them. This was Pasco, Washington, which if you ever look it up, it's on the Columbia River in Washington State, I think on the border between... Oregon and, and Washington. So I was flying in there. Don't remember why I was flying there. That has nothing to do with the story. But I'm flying in, and we apparently learned later that as we're landing, fog had rolled up off the Columbia River and obscured the runway that we were about to land on. Well, it scared the pilot. So what happens when they abort the landing is, of course, they're coming down with almost no power, and they quickly push the throttles forward for full power, set the wing, the slats, everything, so that you take off again before you hit the ground. Well, when you push full power to an airplane that's only flying 150 knots or so, it, it causes that thing to shake badly. And in all the times that's happened to me, I'm telling you, it, you the plane is shaking terribly. Well, the man across the aisle from me is screaming like a teenage girl. Sorry, girls. Okay, screaming like a teenage boy. Okay, I don't know. How. He was screaming. All right. Well, we finally got up, and you get stabilized, and finally the pilot comes on and says, so sorry about that. Here's what happened. He told us. And he said, I'm going to go around. There's another runway we can land on that's not obscured. Fine, whatever. So that man is having a spell. Now, if you're not from down south, you may not know what a spell is. In fact, normally you have to say it with two or three syllables, a spell. But anyway, he was having a spell. And he said, I am a double whatever, diamond, platinum. And he said, that, I've never had that in me. That scared, and he used some words, but he scared me to death. And, you know, it was one of those times I just wish I thought quicker and I would have said what I should have said. But what I thought later was, son, he looked at me, he did say, why are you not frightened? I said, because I'm at peace. What I should have said was, I've got a daughter I want to see in heaven, and I've got the Lord Jesus I want to see in heaven. I'm ready to go. So if this is the way I'm going to go, let it happen, son. Let it happen. I'm not afraid to live, and I'm not afraid to die. For the believer, death 
is both a union and a reunion, isn't it? Then last and more importantly, look at the last major point, please. Though we are caught between two worlds, King James says betwixt, I think, we are still here for a purpose. Paul, in verse 23, uses an interesting construction in Greek text. It's broken. What does that mean? It's as if he were emotional when this was being written. He said, I'm really caught. It was almost like it was a, a, a two-faced cliff, and he's walking between these cliffs, and I'm pressed in both sides. I, I want to die. I want to live. One is better. I want to go, but I'm torn because I'm right here in the middle. And so he uses these phrases to show that he knew that for others it was more important that he stay. So he says, listen, I love you Philippian church. I know you've had some troubles, but you've been good throughout it all. I know if I stay I can help you. Now I'd much rather die. God has not finished with me yet here. So what does that say to you and me? It says if you're still alive, and I trust that you are, you may want to grasp someone and feel and see. Some of them don't look real alive, but you, you may want to just check and see. But if you are alive, God still has you here for a purpose, doesn't he? He has you here for a purpose. Let's see that though we're caught between these two worlds, to live as Christ, to die as gain, we... We're still here for a reason. And I simply ask you, do you know what your reason is? Do you know why God left you here? Do you know what he's called you to do? I told you two weeks ago, I pray that in 2021, you'll find somebody that God would let you win to Christ this year. Or at least invest your life in enough that you can bring them to someone so they can share the gospel with them. That you'd find somebody that just needs encouragement. Maybe a believer that needs encouragement. But what is your purpose? Why has God left you here? Paul said, I know it's better that I stay here for you. We too live in attention, don't we? But God has a purpose for us here. And as long as we have breath, there's a reason. But 121, look back to 121. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. I think that has an interesting test for us. And I want us to fill in some blanks because over the years I think some of us have lived as if this is the way we could read that verse. For me to live is money. And to die is to what? Leave it all behind. For me to live is fame. And to die is to be forgotten. For me to live is power. And to die is to lose it all. Some of you say, well, I don't have any money, don't have any fame, don't have any power. We might say something like this, for me to live is my family. There are people that worship their family. Now, don't get me started on my family, because you know how I am about my family. But you don't worship your family. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Is Jesus all the world to you? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My favorite Southern Baptist preacher of yesteryear, George Truitt, said this. You can find fault with Moses. You can find fault with Abram, with Job, Isaiah, and David. 
You can find fault with Paul and Barnabas. You can put your finger on the sins of every man and woman throughout Scripture. But Christ alone stands faultless, spotless, without sin. And I ask you to give your life to Christ today. Give your life to Christ today. Give your life fully to Christ today. And then you can understand the tension, the dilemma that the Apostle Paul struggled with throughout this text. Before we pray, I want you to say it out loud with me one more time. The 21st verse. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Lord, we thank you for this word from you. A powerful word that speaks to right where we are in the 21st century. Father, we need you to fill us full with your spirit. We need you to show us right now what our purpose is in this life. We need you to use us for your glory because, God, we know we're still here for a reason, even if it is just for a season. We need you to show us. Take our lives, Lord. Let them be what you want them to be. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.